If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 34. We're going to finish Exodus today. Just to put that into perspective, we started right after Easter. <laughs> like 16 weeks we've been in this. And so we're going to finish. In some ways, we're coming around back to the beginning um, because God is going to introduce himself. And this is in this story, he is the central figure, obviously, of the story of Exodus. It's a complicated, complex, nuanced, beautiful, detailed story, and he is the centerpiece of all of it. And it's a story of slaves and sojourners and plagues and miracles. And here he's going to reveal who he is. He's been revealing who he is to skeptics and to believers, pharaohs, children, but he's going to really introduce himself in a way that is going to show up in the Bible often. One of the things that God has been saying through the book of Exodus, if maybe this is one of your first times to be with us, the theme, one of the themes is he is communicating he is not like other gods, right? That's what the plagues primarily are showcasing. He is not like the gods of our imagination, the gods we craft with our hands. He's also not like us. And we, being his people, are not like other nations. That's been a continuing piece of communication between him and us. And in this story, he's going to answer the biggest question of mankind. In the history of mankind, who is God is something that we're going to find said with different words and different languages and different lands. And I mean, how would you answer a question like that, by the way? Who is God? I mean, exactly. A five-year-old comes up and asks you. Your, your neighbor comes up and says, all right, just all church speak out the window, right? Exactly. Tell me who God is. What would you say right on the spot? I, I imagine you'd probably hit the high notes like, like I would. He is the creator of all reality, matter. He's the designer of the cosmos. He's the author of the Bible, the author of the gospel. These are things that we would say, but those are describing what he does, not who he is as much. I mean, what about his personality? the personality of God? What about his character or the hope of God? I mean, that's what makes him up. That's what makes you up, right? Not necessarily what you do. I mean, if you want to know a little bit about somebody, you can ask them what they do. If you want to know a little bit more, you ask them who they are. And here, God is going to tell us who he is. And I think we all suspect that we don't really know all of who God is. In fact, that would be true because he is unquantifiable. We don't have the ability to define him exactly. He can't be accurately with the words that we use, with the computing power we have in our two-pound fallen brain. We don't have the ability to describe God, even if our minds could comprehend even a little bit, a little sliver of who he is. And this bugs us. It bugs humanity that God would carry that level of mystery around and not let us see all the hard edges of who he is. I don't know why we think that would be possible. We don't even know who we are. I don't even know. We have to pay counselors thousands of dollars just to help us understand a little bit of who we are and what makes us tick, yet we get frustrated when we don't know the same thing about God. But now, last week I said that you want, this was the statement I used, you want your God to be an angry God when it comes to sin. You want that. You don't want a God that's passive or tolerant with sin. You want him to have a rage against sin, a devotion and love for sinners and a rage against sin. And then today I'm going to say you want your God to contain mystery. If he does not contain mystery, 
He is no longer God. If you have the ability to stand above him and define him exactly and put hard edges around him and take all of his mystery away, he's no longer God. But the tension is, is our God wants to be known. He wants to be known and known deeply, not just for what he does, but for who he is. And he self-discloses himself in different places in the Bible. And today, he's going to take a small paragraph to tell you and to tell me who he is. How would you do that, by the way? Have you ever tried that exercise? Some of you, you have, and you don't even know it. It's called an Instagram bio, right? You have 150 characters to describe who you are. And I've filled out many bios in my day for whatever group or account. Man, you'll eat up 150 characters really quick. But even if you spent all day on 150 characters, would you not still get to the very end and go, well, that's not really who I am. That's not really who I am. It doesn't really get me. It doesn't nail me. Same thing with an obituary, by the way. Have you ever, I've filled out two obituaries in my life, had the chance to kind of write them, and you're only given so much room in, in a newspaper. For some of you, that's a, a, a piece of paper that's delivered to your front doorstep. You can go out and get it. It's online now. But even if I bought the entire page of the obituaries or the whole website that the obituaries are cast on, even if I did that and had unlimited space, could you, could you even then nail who somebody is? Or would you not get to the end of it and go, well, kind of, but it doesn't nail them exactly how they are. Today, God is going to introduce himself with 361 characters. He wants us to know who he is. And it's important that you know who he is. We've said a few times, A.W. Tozer's quote, that the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Right? That's the most important thing about you. You're going to see that repeatedly today. We all, because of our, our brains, our finite abilities, we carry what I would call a caricature of God around. We all do. I do. I have one. A caricature, if you've ever been to like a theme park or a county fair, it's the, the artists, and they're, they're truly good. I mean, they're, they're great artists. And what they will do is they will sketch a picture of you. But if you, listen, if you happen to have a nose that's 5% bigger than the average person's nose, they're going to make it look like it's huge. If you have eyes that are just a little bit smaller than everybody else's eyes, they're going to make them look like they don't even exist. Because what they do is they take little tiny pieces of your personality and they amplify it, right? That's what a caricature is. And you've probably seen them hanging on walls to look at the person that it belongs to and think, that doesn't even really look like you all that much. I mean, a little bit. It's in your house. I know it's you, but it doesn't really look like you. This is what we carry around when it comes to God. And it affects our entire life. Your caricature of God affects how you see yourself. It affects how you see your purpose here, what you're supposed to be doing with your life, your days, how you fill your days. Everything is influenced by our view of God. Before I became a Christian, God was the one that forgives, but only forgives those who are clean and behaved. And I wasn't clean, and I wasn't behaved, so I just wasn't forgiven. That's how I saw God, and that influenced how I saw everything else related to God. The Bible was just a book that told you how to be clean. It, it, it threw shame on you if you were dirty, and it was a, a description of what it looks like to be clean, with Jesus being the most clean and the most behaved. Local churches, things like this, before Jesus, for me, this is where clean people showed up, or at least those pretending to be clean, right? They'd show up to clean buildings, sit with other clean people, listen to a clean guy up there, talk to everyone about how to be more clean. 
and less dirty. That's all church was, which is why I never felt comfortable there growing up. Forgiveness, that's what you do to those who clean themselves up in an impressive way. See, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. It influences everything. Into the depth that you know who God is will directly correspond to how well you know yourself, who you are, how you got here, why you're here, and what waits for you. Augustine had this quote. He said, novum te, novum me. It says, may I know you, may I know myself. You see, who is God is the question that has to be answered before all other questions. It's the preamble to all of our questions. What am I supposed to be doing while I'm here? What is sin? What is right living? What is friendship? What is community? What is sex? What does time mean? What about money? Everything. So we're going to look in and look at this Instagram bio that God gives us in 361 characters. It's going to be in Exodus 34, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to pause it just for a moment. And listen, I know I said that we're finishing the book of Exodus, and some of you are looking ahead, and you're like, wow, there's a lot more left to Exodus. How come we're stopping here? That's because the rest of the book primarily describes the construction of the tabernacle. We looked at the tabernacle a couple weeks ago, and I made mention then that there were a few chapters given to how God wanted them to build it, the instructions. And he gave them an order of importance, right? That's why we looked at the mercy seat and the ark and the holy of holies. But then it describes, again, with some level of redundancy and overlap, sometimes even word for word, the construction of it. Not just the defining and the strategy, but the construction. And they didn't construct it, this is a little freebie, they didn't construct it in the order of importance. They did it in what made sense the most, right? That's why the orders are swapped up a little bit. But we've already covered that. I'm not going to cover it again with you. So we're going to start with 34 verse 1, and this is the word of the Lord for us today, and we're going to see Jesus very clearly in this passage. It says, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the nature of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and here it is, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation." Verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Okay, maybe second to Jesus' advent. I know we're about to celebrate advent in several weeks. Advent, just, the word just means coming. Jesus is coming. Second, maybe to Jesus coming to us. This is the greatest self-disclosure of God that we have in the Bible. Right here. God has revealed himself in our words to describe something very otherworldly. 
His Instagram bio is very rich with texture. In fact, this passage right here is used and reused and remixed over a dozen times by different people, mostly the prophets. And what's cool is last week we saw that Moses asked God to show his glory. If I could just see your glory. And what did God say? He didn't say, sure. He said, I'll show you my goodness. I'll show you my goodness. Not exactly what he asked for. It's interesting. Because when I consider God's glory, I don't really think of goodness. I don't know if you do or not. Maybe you're a little bit more like me when it comes to glory. Usually my mind goes to weight. Not like pick it up weight, but like presence weight, the feel of them. I imagine a heaviness, a gravity, uh, something that's unbearable, overwhelming, unapproachable. I think of God's glory as this enormous, shattering presence before me, almost unbearable, unyielding, unswerving. That's what I think of. I read passages like Exodus 20, which we hit a few weeks ago, where the people said, Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen and do what you say, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. I imagine it was his glory that overwhelmed them to say something like that. This terrible, evaporating, crushing presence. Something that Dane Ortland says in his book, um, Gentle and Lowly, which by the way, again, we're handing out on the front table. So grab one on your way out. That's a gift to you. He says this in one of the later chapters. He says, our deepest instincts expect him to be thundering, gavel swinging, judgment relishing. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. And then Exodus 34 taps us on the shoulder and stops us in our tracks. It's a beautiful passage because his glory is his goodness. His glory is his goodness. We see God's natural bent here, to use Ortland's words. I say we see his resting face here. We see God's resting face here. It's one of mercy and grace and goodness and faithfulness and steadfast love. He is slow to anger, but he is not slow to mercy. He's slow to anger, but he's not slow to grace. This is important. He has a trigger finger that is not on the red button of destruction waiting for you and me to morally trip over ourselves so he could blast us. We don't need to provoke him to love us. That's the place he starts at, right? The reason that's hard for us to get, and I know no one in this room gets that instinctively, we don't hit, hit the ground running in the morning understanding God to be this way, and this is why we don't. The reason it's hard for us to get our arms around this is because we're easily angered and we need to be provoked to love each other. It's flopped. It's flopped. I'm easily angered. If, if I'm going to give grace, that has to be provoked. Mercy has to be provoked. Faithfulness has to be provoked. In fact, most of the New Testament epistles, those are the letters that Paul and Peter and some other authors wrote, they are provoking us to love each other in different ways because we are slow to mercy, slow to grace, slow to faithfulness, right? And it's because we are slow like that, you and I, we build a caricature of God and we build him in our image. We fashion him to look like us a little bit. And we imagine his resting face to be an angry one that has to be impressed he has to be provoked in order to bring favor. We get it from each other. We get it from here. But again, Exodus has been a book of God showing us he's not like us. 
He's not like us. And he's not like the gods we imagine in our imagination. His resting posture is of grace and mercy. Those are the first two descriptors he gives us right there, by the way. We have to provoke him away from that. That's where he starts. I've worked really hard over seven or eight years to take a scalpel and draw a line between mercy and grace, being two different concepts. We roll them together because they're Bible words, and we just usually imagine them to be a loving thing that we do for another, but we don't really pull them apart. And when you fail to pull those terms apart and see them for what they are, you lose a little bit of texture of the gospel, right? You can imagine it this way. Mercy is God lifting his hand from a punishment that we rightly deserve, Grace is him offering his hand to bring his favor that we do not deserve, right? So mercy is us not getting what we do deserve, and grace is us getting what we do not deserve. So you could almost think of them as two sides of one coin. They do collaborate and work together. The gospel is a gospel of mercy, and it's also a gospel of grace at the same time. And what God's grace and mercy do to you is it takes you and your behavior and your performance, and it decouples it from God's love and his affection for you, right? It decouples it. They don't touch anymore. This is why this is hard for us. This is why when we hit the ground running in the morning, we can't get our arms around this because we aren't like this. Our grace and mercy for each other, oh, they do depend on behavior and performance. I will forgive you if you are forgivable, right? I'll give you mercy if you've been impressive enough to get it. I'll love you if you're lovable, I'll be patient if you're quick, (laughs) right? This is how we are. I'll show you favor if you earn it. And again, God chimes in this great story and says, I am not like you. I'm not like you. And then he says he's steadfast. He is lovingly, aboundingly steadfast and faithful. And this just means he keeps his promise to not drop us. And he says up to a thousand most translations say a thousand generations, right? That's his way of saying forever. A thousand's not a number there. It's an idea. It just means perpetuity. It means forever. He binds himself to an unbreakable covenant and a bond to you and me. And he doesn't wait for our performance to secure that bond. He does it with his own blood. He secures it. He starts a bond and a covenant with bond breakers, and he knows it ahead of time. We cannot burn down any bridges to his commitment to us. We can't shake him loose. We can't get him to stop loving us. We can't get him to stop being devoted to us, to stop being committed to us. We can't, we can't provoke him away. This is why this is hard for us. Because we are not like this, you and I. We don't live like this, so we have a hard time enjoying it. Our covenant bonds, broken easily. We break them. Because we, we don't base it off of grace and mercy, we base it off of works, which means you're going to have to do something to keep me in this arrangement. You're going to have to perform a certain way, behave a certain way if you want me to stay connected to you, bound to you, covenanted to you. That's why marriages fail. That's why marriages fail. Not so with God. He doesn't just make an unbreakable bond. He makes it with people he knows ahead of time are going to break that bond. <laughs> he is a promise maker to promise breakers. He's a promise keeper to promise breakers. And nothing will separate the love of God from his people. We see, we can't break grace. We can't break it. We can't ruin mercy. We can't have our way with it. And even when we are faithless, the Bible says that he's faithful. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it brings him glory. It brings him glory to be merciful like this. Which is total turkeys. It brings him glory to give grace to people that are running away from it. 
It brings him glory to stay connected to people that are pushing away as hard as they can. It brings him glory to fulfill this description of himself. And here's the best part about his steadfastness. He's not even tempted to desert us. He's not even tempted. That's the way we imagine it, right? Whenever we're doing a bad impersonation of ourselves, we think that maybe he was graceful and merciful in the beginning when he thought I had a return on his investment, when he thought I would be worth something, when he thought I would be okay. But after he watches us play for a few quarters, maybe not the pick he thought that we would be, right? He, he regrets it. We imagine God looking at us and saying, I had such big plans for you. I had such big plans for you. I just didn't know you were going to turn out like this. I thought you were going to grow a little bit. I thought you wouldn't hold on to that sin as long as you did. I thought you would change a little bit faster. It just didn't turn out the way I hoped. That's the way we imagine him to talk to us and look at us. You know why? That's how we handle each other. Again, that's how we handle each other. And that is how we are handled by each other. And when we are not careful, we will let our personalities build a character of God. And again, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's why descriptions like this are so big for us. He has no regrets for the promises he makes. He has no regrets for binding himself to his people. Not one. He's not even tempted. And at this point in his description, his self-disclosure, it almost sounds like you can get away with murder. Right? It sounds like he's a pushover, a featherweight. He's a wimp here. He doesn't require justice. I mean, this, is, this sounds like tolerance in the way our culture uses the word tolerance, not the proper word. Of the, it, just, it doesn't look like there's any teeth to this. And then you get to this pivot in verse 7 where he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? He will not clear the guilty. That's interesting. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, sin and guilt is passed down. I sin because my parents did. They sinned because their parents did. All the way back to the tree. When someone plucks some fruit off of a restricted tree to be independent from God, guilt will roll through the generations. The guilty will not be cleared. No clearance. We are born guilty into a death sentence that we have no chance of reversing. Right? None. And this is what loads the gospel with value. Without that fact, without verse 7... The gospel becomes cheap, sentimental, coffee mug garbage where you're loved by God because you're courageous enough to love yourself. That's what it becomes. Grace doesn't mean that God decided you wouldn't be guilty anymore. That's not what it means. In other words, there is no clearance for the guilty. There's no situation where the judge is looking down on the accused, you and me, and then just deciding he's feeling it. He's having a good day. It's fall, the air's crisp, pumpkin lattes are out now, all the lights were green to get to work, he's about to go on vacation, just feeling good. And there you are with all of your dirt and your muck and your rebellion, and he's just feeling it. And he's like, you know what, innocent, man. I know, I know. Hey, I'm having a good day, though, so you're innocent. That would be clearing the guilty. He says he's clearing no one. He is not going to clear the guilty. What happens instead is the judge who sees our crimes is also the substitute who comes and answers them. The judge who declares death is also the one who steps down and receives the wrath. 
Steadfastness, it comes to you and me because judgment came to Jesus. Jesus was found guilty so that you and I would be cleared. That's where the gospel is buried like a jewel in this self-disclosure made while Moses is clinging to a rock as hard as he can while a cloud is there and he's holding some stones. In that moment, God was not just disclosing himself to Moses and to you and me. He's actually giving a seed form of what the gospel itself will look like if we have eyes to see it. So who is God becomes a significant question. And I'll tell you one application because you can go for eons. There's so many applications for this. But one that I think is probably applicable to everyone in the room is whenever we see our inability to change. Who is God when you can't change? When you can't grow? This is important. When we say to God after that thing we did, what are you going to do with me? Like, what, what are you going to do with me? Look at me. I can't quit. I can't grow. I keep trying. I'm not lovable. I'm not changing. Let's face it. How has 2021 been so far? A lot like 2020, right? Same things. Still struggling with the same stuff. Still failing in the same way. Still the same sickness in your stomach. Still the same vows coming out of our mouth that we'll never do it again, that we'll change, that we'll be better. How has it been? Who is God to you in those moments? That's what matters. That's what matters. The most important thing about you is how you answer that question. Your theology is not reflected on the sharp things that you say that you heard somebody say on YouTube when you're in a group with other Christians in a living room. That thing that makes you look smart, the thing that you remembered, that is not the measure of your theology. The measure of your theology is how you see God in the midst of sin and suffering. That's where you really know, where the rubber meets the road, how you look at God and how you look at yourself in the middle of sin, in the middle of suffering. Exactly how steadfast is his mercy and grace? How? We're going to skip a little bit and go to verse 29, and that's because he's going to just renew the covenant and hit the same big moments there for several verses, but there is something here that I think requires a little bit of teaching. It's usually a question mark for a lot of people. And it says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and to the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them afterward all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see his face face, the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. (laughs) What is going on? Shining face, what is that all about exactly? What is that about? Like what kind of shine? You ever imagined in your head when you read that passage, like black light shine, you know, like at a rave or like just shiny complexion or bright lights coming out of his head? What does that mean? His face shone. 
He is literally, this is what's happening. He is literally reflecting God's glory. Remember, Moses is the mediator between man and God. So God is in some ways authenticating Moses, verifying Moses as one who is operating as a mediator. You could say, I guess, in some ways that God's glory rubbed off on him. So he reflected God's glory and that people would know he's the real deal. People would know he is commended by God to intercede for us before God. That's, that's theologically what's happening. And this was happening so brilliantly to the point where he'd have to put a veil on. Later on in the New Testament, it would talk about how that might be an issue. But one of the reasons he would do this is because people were coming unnerved. It was uncomfortable. He was shining so much. He was so close to God, it was obvious to everyone, and it was too much to people that he was shown. I've been around people. I've been around people that make me uncomfortable because they are so close to God. Haven't you? Right? You just know that they have spent time in the very presence of God. They value it. They're just drenched with the joy of God. The words that come out of their mouth are timely. They're framed with happiness and trust and strength. There's substance to them. You've seen this. They change. They grow. As Philippians say, they shine in a dark and twisted, depraved world. I can see it. I can see it in how they handle their mouth, their money, their time, their spouse. I can see it. They reflect God brilliantly. And I feel indicted. I feel a little bit indicted. I, ha I hate the fact that I'm not like them. And then I hate the fact that I don't hate it enough that I'm not like them. And before I know it, when I'm unnerved around someone like that, I feel shame. Shame and guilt. Just kind of wear it. Smothers you a little bit. I don't know a lot. I know this about shame. Shame will not change you. Shame cannot change the human heart. Guilt and shame cannot do it. They could do a lot of things. They could change a mood ring. They can get you to cancel work that day. Shame and guilt can get you to do a bunch of things, but it cannot change the human heart. I want to shine like one who has been in the presence of God. I want to glimmer as one who spends time with the author of grace and mercy. So how do we do it? How do we get there? And this is where the good news comes out in deeper texture in a passage like this. Because Jesus came to earth reflecting even more of God than Moses did because he was God himself. Right? He's shown. He's shown. God was saying, I'm not like you, as I've been saying, but I will come to be with you, and I will redeem you, and represent you, and I will friend you. The righteous and just judge came as graceful substitute in an act of mercy and steadfast love to you and me. I mean, when you look at the 361 character bio, Jesus is the personification of that. Jesus comes and puts that on. It's God's introduction, but God's introduction becomes flesh and dwells among us, as John says in John 1. Who is God? Mankind's question, firmly and completely answered in Jesus. Jesus himself carries the complete character of God. If you want to know who God is, all you have to do is read the Gospels. Watch him. Spend time watching him. Paul tells the Corinthian church, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's ripping that right out of Exodus, by the way, right? 
Now, here's the thing. Jesus would not veil himself to make others feel comfortable, though, would he? In fact, it's that fact that the elite would carry across to him that he would have to carry up a hill. He made people so unnerved and so indicted that in order for them to stay in the darkness, they'd have to snuff his light out in order for them to stay where they're at. Paul tells the Colossian church that he is the image of the invisible God, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Not like us, but came to be with us to redeem us. And it, it gets even better than this. The good news gets even better than this. Because he gave you and me, if you were in Christ, a superior ministry over what Moses had. He gave us the Holy Spirit. And I know that's such a yawn point, right? Holy Spirit, oh, the Holy Spirit again. I don't even know what that means. Listen, this is what we do know. Moses would envy the fact that you have the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. He would be trotting out of a tent with his face shining light, still don't know what that means, right about to put the veil on, had been with God, as we saw last week, speaking face to face as friends do. And if he could look over the bend of time and see you with the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you, he would envy you. He would want to trade spots with you. That's what's crazy. You have the presence of God within you, renewing you, leading you, comforting you, reminding you, encouraging you, teaching you, holding you together, giving you sleep, empowering you, drawing you, settling you down, getting you stirred up. He does all of these things. If you want to change, and I suspect everyone in the room wants to change. If you want to change, it begins with the Holy Spirit leading you to enjoy Jesus. That's where it starts. That's where change starts, enjoying Jesus. It won't happen with shame. It won't happen with shame. Shame is the voice that says you are wrong. The Holy Spirit brings conviction that says this is wrong. This thing is wrong. This pattern is wrong. But you are loved. You're beloved. Shame just comes and says you're just not a good fit. You really ought to be better. You should be better. You're not right for God. Without God's spirit, we cannot enjoy God. We cannot know who he is, know who we are. Can't change. Because guilt won't change us. Shame won't change us. You've tried that already. We all know this to be true, right? We all know it. You've tried to feel really rotten. Have you ever done this where you've sinned doing that thing again, whatever that thing is, and you try to make yourself feel rotten? Because you feel like if you just feel rotten, rotten enough that you won't want to do that thing again. If you could just feel the pain as deeply as possible, then that pain itself will push the sin away because you'll remember it certainly, right? It's, it's like feeling rotten for rotten's sake. And that's not even enough for substantial change. Neither is the law. The law is not enough to change your heart. It could change your behavior, ask the Pharisees, but it won't change your heart. Inspiration won't change you. It'll give you a picture of what could be but it won't change the heart. None of this will change the heart. The only way you can possibly change is by beholding and enjoying and savoring Jesus in his deep glory. Change comes by steady presence with a good and glorious God. This is why we hold him up high in every sermon. I want you to grow, but I, I, can't, I can't guilt you into it. What would that even do? I want you to grow but I'm not gonna pound the law up here like, like a machine gun. But what we can do is vow with you that we're gonna hold Christ high, that you would love him, see him clearly and compellingly in different ways, in different moments, and pick up pieces of who he is, not just what he has done, but who he is. 
that you would enjoy him and savor him deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. You beholding the glory of God in Christ is the only hope for change. It's the only hope for this city. It's the only hope for Knoxville. And here's the cool thing. If you are in Christ, you have as much God as Moses had in the tent and more. You have God himself. You have God himself. And what does this look like for us to walk as we shine before a, a depraved culture? Like, like Paul says, what does that even look like? You'd think I would say right now that it looks like you acting better, behaving better, right? Not sinning as much, that that's what it would look like. I'll tell you, it means living without shame and guilt. It means living without that. His grace means you no longer have to prove yourself. There's nothing to prove, no one to impress. Imagine the freedom of living a life where there's no one to impress and there's nothing to prove to God. Imagine that for a moment, what it would do. His mercy means that there's no need to fear judgment. You don't have to walk around like a boot's about to drop. Like you did that thing and just any moment God's going to zap you. He's just waiting for it to be inconvenient and then he's going to get you, right? You don't have to live like that anymore. It means a steadfast bond won't abandon us. You are free. You are free. And God is glorified when you enjoy him. He is glorified most when you enjoy him most. That's how it works. So he is glorified in you when you live this life free of punishment and trying to prove yourself. And this is why we have the growth and journey of a Christian. Being a Christian, a lot of times, is deconstructing the character that you carried of God and carrying what he says about himself into the picture, letting that inform how you see who he is and therefore who you are. And that's a slow and hard process. I'm still doing it. Every once in a while, I'll trip on something, a little paragraph here, a passage there, something that one of you say just off the cuff, and I'm like, man, God is like that. The gospel does do that. I forget that sometimes. I got to install that into the software. I don't know where. I used to believe that. I have to be spurred to think it deeper. I have to add it. I, that, that's one of the reasons that community is so powerful, by the way. Now, most of what I've told you today, you probably already knew. But you don't always know, right? That's why we do what we do. That's why guilt and shame comes back. That's why we have anxiety. That's why we have anger, because we don't always know. And this is why knowing who God is is the most important thing about us, right? So there's room for us to repent in a passage like this just as we close out. Again, how has 2021 been? A lot like 2020, 2019? Still struggling with the same flavor of sin. Still struggling to change. Despondent, depressed that you can't do it. Who is God to you in that moment? In that season, in that month, but especially in that moment. When you feel the worst. You feel the darkest. The most lost. Who is God to you in that moment? It's the most important thing about us. If you're trying to punish yourself into change... If you're making yourself feel bad because the penance feels so cleansing, you need to know that that requires repentance. That sounds weird, almost, that I would even say that. But if, what you're really saying is I have to rescue myself. Jesus' blood is not enough to cover this sin, so i got to whoop myself. i got to feel extra rotten, at least for a week or two. got to feel extra rotten. I have to tell everybody about what I did so that they look down on me. Uh, we call it accountability. And because they're, they're firmly disappointed and they furrow their brow, that it makes me feel a little bit cleaner. 
what we're doing is we're saying we don't believe that God is kind enough. We don't believe that what Jesus did is enough, so we have to add to it. We have to supplement the gospel by feeling bad. It's weird that we do that. It's odd that we do that, but we do. So yeah, we repent for the sin that we commit, and then we repent for the penance we try to pay to substitute ourselves in for Jesus. And there's room for that for you and me today as his church. And listen, if you're here and you're not a believer, or you're watching online and you're not a believer, who is God is the most important question before you. It still remains. It defines who you are. defines where you came from. How you got here. Well, where you're going to end up. All the haunting questions that you had before you clicked on the link or before you got in the car to come here. The, what we call Christ haunting us. All those questions. He is provoked to anger and he loves easily. I hope you hear that today. And I also want you to know when judgment comes, judgment will rest on the shoulders either of Christ or you. Either Jesus received the wrath or the wrath awaits. And he has already stated incredibly clear for you and me, the guilty will not be cleared. The guilty will not be cleared. But he is good here and gracious and merciful and steadfast and glorious. And he is not like you and he is not like the gods that you've been serving. So I would just submit to give yourself to this kind king, this suffering servant, our glorious general, that you would submit yourself to a friend who loves you with mercy, with grace, with steadfast faithfulness.